Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. All right, week four of a series that we've been doing on Galatians called A Journey Into Captivity. And uh, if you've been around, you know my argument. I don't think this was intentional per se, but if you track chronologically through Galatians, what Paul does is he lays out for you the key doctrines along the way that describe what a life in Christ looks like. Starting with the point of conversion, leading to death. You may remember the the calendar here. Uh, You can throw it up here. Um, This is kind of the path we'll be on all the way to Easter. By the way, early Easter this year, March 31st. But this is our path into Easter. And, uh, and I think it's incredible. Now today we're gonna finish up, you see that section of four, what I've been calling the doctrines of conversion. The doctrines of conversion happen in a moment. But they impact your identity for the rest of your life. And I want you to know that if you're a Christian and you're in this room today, these are true of you right now. Jesus has revealed himself to you. And when you responded, you were justified in Christ, adopted into the family of God and liberated from law and to love. That's true of you today. You can take that home with you. And if you're not a Christian, I'll just remind you, as I have every week on these doctrines of conversion, if you're not a Christian, that could be true of you today as well. Amen. If you want. But only if you want. We ain't going to force you. Ain't no coercion here. But I hope you want. I hope you'll open your heart to the message today. Now, with that being said, today we're going to continue the series by looking at liberation. Liberation from law unto love. So if you do me a favor, uh, would you stand with me? If you're able, please stand. If you're not able to stand, that's okay. Uh, You can remain seated. Just put your heart and mind in a place of submission under the authority of God's word. And I wanna read to you Paul's argument from Galatians 5 about our freedom, about how Christ has liberated us. And what I want you to do, this is a pretty dense passage. Um, What I want you to do is I want you to summon all that you've learned about Galatians over the last few weeks with us and try to make sense of what Paul's arguing here. I'm gonna explain in a second. I want you to try to make sense of it on your own here though. Starting Galatians 5, verse one, Paul writes this, one through 16. He says, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. I love that line. And don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. 
For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Amen. You were running the race so well. Who's held you back from following the truth? Certainly isn't God, for he's the one who called you to freedom. This false teaching is... It's like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. I am trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. God will judge that person, whoever he is, who has been confusing you. Dear brothers and sisters, if I were still preaching that you must be circumcised, as some say I do, why am I still being persecuted? If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. I just wish that those troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. Whew. He's angry. He writes, for you have been called to freedom, to live in freedom, my brothers and my sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. And church, let's, let's read this last verse together, verse 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Word of the Lord, you can be seated. And thanks be to God for every last word of his word, including liberation. Okay, now, a pretty dense passage there. Um, I know exactly what some of y'all are thinking. Some of y'all are thinking, Tyler, that was a lot about circumcision. <clears throat> and I didn't come to church today to talk about circumcision. Spoiler alert, neither did I. Like, I didn't want to talk about circumcision today. Like, they just put the mic on me. How would you like to be put, have a mic put on your face in front of a thousand of your friends and then say, let's talk about circumcision? You know, like, <laughs> but here we are. So, I feel you. I feel you. But here's the deal. Before we get practical and talk about how this liberation impacts our lives and applies to us, we have to get historical again first and understand how Paul's working this out in Galatia. So we got to go there. Now, now remember, Paul did not write Galatians as a theology book for seminarians in 2024, did he? Paul wrote this as a letter, a personal letter to a network of churches full of people whom he loved that he planted. And there's a specific issue going on in these churches and in this letter, he's addressing that issue head on. So y'all may remember this interpretive uh, key from the Bible study week. Uh, in the first, first week of the series, we studied the whole book of Galatians to kind of set the context, all of it. I just wanna review this with you because this will help you understand Galatians 5. Again, Galatians is a theologically dense letter written by formerly Saul of Tarsus, now Paul, the apostle, to a network of churches planted by him in the region of Galatia. And here's the problem. So important for you to wrap your mind around this. Here's the problem. Some very influential false teachers 
from inside of Christianity have gone up in his churches in Galatia and other churches that he's planted and they're undermining his gospel to the Gentiles by adding Torah allegiance, circumcision, dietary laws, purity codes, calendars, a lot of the Old Testament stuff, right? They're adding Torah allegiance on top of faith in Christ alone. Paul taught Jesus plus nothing equals everything. They're saying, whoa, 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 it's Jesus plus Torah that equals everything. Now, you remember this? For those of you here, you remember this? That's why, he writes, that's why he's written Galatians. That's why he's got to go in on the topic of circumcision. He, he went to Galatia. He preached the gospel of Christ alone. He left. False teachers came in. Some of them apparently were even saying that Paul doesn't even preach Jesus plus nothing anymore. So he's got to correct that. Because they've, they've gone and confused everybody. Now, if you also remember from our Bible study weekend, uh, man, when Paul came into Christianity, he stirred the pot, didn't he? He, st- I mean, he was stirring the pot beforehand because he was Saul, the persecutor. When he came in, I would suggest he maybe stirred the pot even more. So uh, before Paul converted to Christianity, you got to remember, Christianity was primarily a Jewish Christian movement. It was primarily Jews who were accepting Jesus. They saw Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And so it just made sense to them to, to, for it to work that way. So for the first several years of Christianity, uh, their worship, their theology, their cultural expression was very Jewish. It seems if you read the New Testament, like uh, many of them were still practicing circumcision, food laws, purity codes, all the Old Testament stuff. Because it wasn't old to them at that point. By the way, who could blame them? Who could blame these early Jewish Christians for having a hard time giving up some of these traditions that have been embedded in their people. The Mosaic law was 1,500 years old at this point. That's that's hard to give up. You wouldn't change your traditions. Okay, if somebody come up into church and they're like, look, man, uh, we gotta change some stuff. Christ has fulfilled a few things. He has fulfilled uh, Easter. So no more pastel dresses, put them in the goodwill pile. He's fulfilled communion. I know you love your little snack and so we're gonna put that in, in, in the garbage. And he's also, no more going to the Mexican restaurant after church. That's off limits, <laughs> we're done. Now, I, I know Northeast Christian Church. I know your brand of Christianity. And Easter, communion, and chips and salsa are essential to you and me. Maybe more me. But it's just these are essential, right? If somebody came in and started undermining your traditions, you'd probably struggle a bit as well. Now, here's the other thing. Not only was the church's worship and discipleship very culturally Jewish at the start, uh, they were also reaching mostly Jews, with their evangelism, which again makes total sense because a lot of times our evangelistic efforts start in our friend group. They start in our family. They start in our comfort zone, in our neighborhood. Evangelism should start there. But Christianity wasn't supposed to stop there. It was supposed to go out. Do do you remember what Jesus' last words were to the disciples at the beginning of Acts? The Acts Great Commission. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, right before Jesus ascends, this is what he says to them. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what's that spirit going to empower him to do? Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me where? Everywhere. And then he gets very specific. In Jerusalem, that was the locus point of the Jewish faith. In Judea, that was the region around it. In Samaria, that's where the people they didn't really like lived. And then also everywhere else. 
to the ends of the earth. Now, it seems so clear to us, right? It's, it's, Jesus is clear here. But apparently it was difficult for them. They did not do well going to the rest of the earth. And you know how I know that? Because read Acts. The first eight or nine chapters take place in Jerusalem. It's almost like they can't get out of Jerusalem. I, I've made a little slide for you here. Um, that just kind of tracks these first chapters. In Acts chapter one, we see Jesus give the to the ends of the earth commission. Then in Acts chapter two, 3,000 converts, 3,000 baptisms on the Pentecost festival. But where did it happen? In Jerusalem. Acts three and four, there's powerful healing and teaching ministry in Jerusalem. Acts four and five, earth shaking prayer services, all in capital campaigns, explosive church growth, in Jerusalem. Acts 6, new leaders are commissioned in Jerusalem. Acts 7, we've got people willing to be martyred and persecuted for the faith in Jerusalem. It's just all happening in Jerusalem. Now it's interesting, finally they start going to Judea and Samaria, but I want to show you why. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Acts says, a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in where? Jerusalem, because that's pretty much the only place it was. Uh, and it says, on all the believers, except who? The apostles were scattered, uh, scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Okay, so finally we got them started on at least Judea and Samaria, finally. But what did it take to get them out of Jerusalem? Persecution. And who didn't go? The apostles of all people. Y'all got the commission. What are you doing? So I just imagine at this point, saying in the Bible, I just imagine at this point, Jesus like face palming in heaven, like, look, man, I should have known after three and a half years with these guys. Father, they ain't leaving. We're gonna have to recruit somebody else if we want to get this to the ends of the earth. And so what, is, what happens in Acts 9? Someone else gets recruited. Saul, a.k.a. Paul. I'm gonna tell you what, after Paul switches from team persecution to team Jesus... He took it to the ends of the earth. It's almost like he goes and meets with the, the other disciples. He's like, listen, okay, we gotta get this to the ends of the earth. So Matt, please. Okay, you guys, here's Jerusalem. You guys take Jerusalem and let's see, I'll take, uh, I'll take the rest. <laughs> and he is incredibly successful. In fact, once Paul starts doing his thing, Christianity flips and all of a sudden, there are as many Gentile Christians as there are Jewish Christians, maybe more. And so these two different cultural expressions of Christianity collide, you see. The Gentiles felt no obligation to Jewish tradition. They didn't know the traditions. Paul had told them not to worry about the traditions. They were free from Torah, he said. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But the Jewish Christian traditionalists, ah, they did not agree. So they came in and they were saying, look, Paul is wrong. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So people need the Jewish law too. And things were contentious and confused. So back to our interpretive key here. That's why Paul's tone is fiery and frustrated. That's why he wants people to mutilate themselves. I mean, I'm like, Paul, slow down. That's a sin, right? Like, but it's okay. Anyways, you know, like just chill. But he realizes the stakes are high. Because the church is, what, 15 years old at this point? But already on the verge of a potential split into two denominations. 
Now you get the, you get the context, this, you get the historical situation. With that setup in mind, it's like shining a bright light on Galatians 5. It illuminates this passage for you. All of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, well, I see what Paul was arguing and why. So let me walk you through his theological argument here. I think he's basically answering three questions from Galatians 3 through Galatians 5. The first question is this. All right, okay, Paul, if we're now free from Torah, what was even the point of it to begin with? Because you said, don't worry about it, but then these other guys came in and they were like, no, it's a really, really big deal. So we're going to go with you, but, but why, why Torah to begin with? Well, Paul says Torah played two roles. Both of them were important. One, it played a very positive role as our temporary guide or tutor, he says. It guided us along the way towards the will of God until the fuller revelation of God came in Jesus. But two, Paul argues that Torah also played a negative role. It played the role of our accuser. It showed us that we are cursed. Now, you know this, by nature, that's what law does. Law condemns. It draws the line of criminality. It doesn't save you or make you good. It actually shows you when you've gone bad. And according to the law, we're all, we're all bad. Israel, if you read their story in the Old Testament, they perpetually failed at keeping Torah. Now, don't stick up your nose and judge them because you would have to and you still do today. You fail at keeping the law. Whatever law you choose. Whatever law you choose. I, I said this a couple weeks ago. Okay, I want you to pretend. I want you to pretend for a second that, uh, that a camera followed you around all of your life. Pretend. And, um, and it only clicked on and recorded you when you said something to someone else about the way you think people should live. Well, I think people should be like, I think people should do that. Clicked on, bloop, recorded you. Okay, okay, you got it, got it. And bloop, clicked off when you were done. And then when you die and you stand before the divine judge, I want you to pretend that God takes that camera, plugs it into his cosmic projector, and he says, you know what? I'm going to be fair. I'm not going to judge you based on the Bible. That's too hard. I'm not going to judge you on, on Jesus' righteous standard. That's just too hard for you. You didn't even believe it, okay? So, so I'm just going to judge you based on your standards. I'm going to judge you based on your truth. Live your truth, girl. Live your truth, bro. Okay, sounds fair. Let's see how you did. Play. I'll go ahead and tell you, even on that judgment day, not one of us would be able to stand. Not one. We would all stand accused. It's because the law accuses us. Galatians 3.11. We should throw that first slide up. I want to read this verse to you. Galatians 3.11, Paul says, so it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. And I would add to that any law. I mean, that is the understatement of the century, y'all. Now that brings us to the next sort of flow of his argument. This is kind of the second question I think he's wrestling out with the community. Okay, they're like, okay, so the law, the law accuses us, we get that. So what exactly did Jesus do to free us then from the Torah? Well, Paul says, well, first, Jesus met our end of the law covenant with his perfect righteousness. The covenant was keep the law, you'll receive blessing, right? Obedience ends in blessing. Well, the Israelites couldn't do that on their own, but Jesus was the faithful Israelite who showed perfect righteousness on their behalf. So he fulfilled the precepts of the law and unlocked the blessing. Second, Jesus paid though, he also paid our penalty of disobedience. 
So not only did he do the good stuff, but he paid for all of our bad stuff with his death and with his resurrection. So Paul says, we've been liberated. We've been liberated not only from the precepts of the law, but also the penalty of it. Do you see? Now that leads to the next part of the argument. Their last question, if you will. Okay, we get it. Free from the law, uh, but the law was our guide, they might say. So who's going to guide us now? If Torah is fulfilled, what will now guide us in the will and the ways of God? Well, Paul says, I have good news for you. Jesus has replaced the Torah with an even better God. Do you know him? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit not only liberates us from the law, but he also guides us in to love. Galatians 5, 14, the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 16, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide you, he says. Now throughout the summary slide, one through seven, note takers, this is Paul's argument. Lots of history here, but do you see? Are you coming along with me? You see, you following the argument, you following the context. I hope this illuminates this chapter for you. Was it too hard? Do you, is, when, and my, when my son was in first grade, his teacher gave him brain breaks whenever they, they had a mentally challenging session. Do you need a brain? We need look, play the kids, kids bop. Play kids, do you wanna play some kids bop? You need to do baby shark for a second? Are you good? You good? Okay, good. I'm good, I don't need any more baby shark. I heard that, oof. Anyway, so. Let's get practical. I want to contend with you today that Paul suggests that even though he's laid out this idea of liberation from the law and to love very, very clearly, I, I wanna to suggest to you that Paul points out in Galatians 5, two groups that are gonna miss it. Because I've laid it out, but there's two groups that are still gonna miss it. And I believe the same two groups that he said would miss it back then are the same two groups still missing it today. Group number one is the legalists. I'm gonna call them the fundies today, as in fundamentalists. You'll see why in a second. These are the people who choose to remain under the law. And then the second are the antinomians. That's a scholarly word. We'll get to that in a second. Um, in street talk, there's the, they're the selfies. We got the fundies and the selfies. And the selfies, these are the ones who abuse this freedom we have in order to indulge self. The legalists and the antinomians, the fundies and the selfies. Here's my question for you. For the rest of the sermon, I would like for you to consider, which are you? What's your propensity? Because I believe we all tend to lean one way or the other. Now, let me help you figure that out, all right? Um, let's start with the fundies, the legalists. I nicknamed them the fundies because fundy is, is short for, for fundamentalist. And I think today, today's version of fundamentalism that we see, they're just a lot like Paul's legalists. We are living right now through a fundamentalist revival among religious and non-religious groups for the record. And if you don't agree with whatever their fundamentalist belief or non-negotiable is, then you're out, you're canceled, you're boycotted, you're on the wrong side of history or just go to hell. Literally, that's what they'll say. That's the fundamentalist mindset. And fundamentalism is a mindset, to be clear. 
Uh, Richard Land is a scholar of ethics and political engagement. And, uh, and this is what he said. He said, don't think of fundamentalism as like a, a specific theology per se. Think of fundamentalism today as a psychology. It's a way of thinking about really any issue that can turn its supporters into this legalistic fundamentalist cancel culture. What makes you a fundamentalist isn't what you believe, it's how you believe what you believe, you see? So uh, in an article by David French, he actually suggested that there are three psychological characteristics that mark fundamentalists, three. Here's the three. Uh, first one is certainty, certainty. Fundies hold their pet peeve beliefs with absolute certainty. There is no doubt in their mind. By the way, pet peeve is a critical part of this definition because these fundies can seem so compassionate. They can seem so tolerant or open-minded or kind when it comes to all sorts of other beliefs. But when it comes to their pet peeve belief, their fundamentalist non-negotiable, you better watch out. You disagree with them. You're an idiot. You're, an e you're evil. And out, get out. But I'm your mother. Like, what do, you, what do you mean get out? Like, I didn't, I'm just trying to figure out where this belief can, out, mom. You laugh. You laugh. But it's real. Which leads us to number two, the ferocity of it. The ferocity of it. It's certain, but it's also ferocious. Fundies act against objectors with rage, bitterness, and dismissal. Basically, in street talk, they're mean. You want to you see if you got a fundy on your hands? Disagree with them. To be clear, disagreeing doesn't make you mean. How you disagree is what makes you mean. And they're mean. They will insult you. They will caricature you. They will rip your words out of context, drag you through the mud publicly. I've seen it happen in church many times. Maybe for the best example of this though, um, you, should, you should turn on tonight, if you can stand it. Uh, I want you, you should turn on tonight national media. You should turn on MSNBC, turn on Fox News. And I want you just to pay attention on how they present their argument versus the other side. Because here's what you'll see. When they present their side, it's just obvious, right? And it's the best case argument. And it's just, duh, you're like, why, why would you not believe this? But when they present the other side, oh, it's like the worst case argument. And then they're caricaturing and they're over uh, generalizing. And, and, uh, and, okay, and, and then, then they'll pull out a story of the very worst person from the other side. And they'll be like, look at this story of them. As if everybody on the other side is just like this. And what happens if, if you live in that sort of ecosphere of news long enough, what you'll start to think is, well, geez, all those people on the other side, how could they believe that? They, they must either be unintelligent or evil. Which brings us to our third characteristic of the fundies, and that is communal solidarity. Fundies build this insular community that excludes anyone not all in with their belief. So adopt our beliefs, follow our rules, hate our enemies, and never doubt this is the way. And if you do doubt, you're out. And by out, we mean you're less worthy of human dignity than everyone else and go to hell. Now, okay, well, certainty, ferocity, solidarity. One, two, three. This is the modern day legalist. And, uh, and you know, the sad part about it is that this is in the church. 
It's outside the church too. It's in the church. And, and maybe the sadder part about it is, is that most of these groups begin with a very righteous idea. They start with a righteous idea, good intentions. It's like, we gotta stand for the truth or we gotta fight injustice. We gotta save our nation. We gotta protect our children. We have to honor God. The missionaries that came and pushed back on Paul, their crusade began with a righteous desire to honor God's word. But don't miss this. Here's where they went wrong. They allowed their zeal to magnify secondary and tertiary issues bigger than Jesus himself. So look, this is the mind, this is the mindset Paul was preaching against then. I believe this is the mindset Paul is still preaching against today. Jesus needs no supplements. Or next slide here. I believe the main problem with this legalistic, fundamentalist, cancel culture mindset is that it denies the sufficiency of Christ. It denies the sufficiency of his death, of his resurrection to save us. When you find yourself saying or thinking, you know, God needs more from you than faith in Jesus to adopt you, you need to repent. You're a legalist. Or when you find yourself thinking, I need more from you to treat you like a human, to treat you with kindness, to treat you like a brother and sister in Christ, you need to repent because you are a legalist. Is that you? Maybe not. So let's do the selfies. The antinomians, see that hand in the back, go ahead. Tyler, the anti, uh, what, speak Kentucky, please. Okay, so antinomian, nomos, namos, no, it's the Greek word for law. So anti-namos, antinomian, is the, they're, the, they're the anti-laws. They're the instead of laws, you see? Instead of being under law, they live lawlessly. See that other hand in the back, go ahead. Tyler, why do scholars have to do stuff like that? I have no idea. It's because they're scholars and just, okay. Anyways, um, we love our scholars here at Northeast. But here's what Paul envisions. Paul basically envisions that some will hear his message and they'll think that he's saying, well, okay, I guess that means all rules, all regulations, all boundaries, they're not important anymore. We're free. And they'll take that freedom that we have from the law as permission to swing the pendulum the other way and live lawlessly. By the way, does this sound familiar to any of you? You seen this? But here's what he's gonna argue. Just because law can't save us doesn't mean that law ain't important. Galatians 5.13. This is the NRSV because I like their translation here a bit better than NLT. Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for what? Self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. And do you remember what 5.14 says, the next verse? He says, the whole law is summed up in one single commandment. What was the commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Or translation for Paul, at least one law still matters. Now I would say to you for the Galatians, uh, there was some antinomianism back then, but it seems to me like legalism is probably the bigger problem for the community. But today for America, in, in Second Americans chapter five, Sure, there's some legalism going on in the church, but I got a feeling that Paul might say the bigger problem for us is, is this self-indulgence, he calls, self-indulging freedom. 
Now, of course, we don't call it self-indulgence. No, why would we do that? Because that sounds so, I don't know, selfish. <laughs> Instead, we redeem it by calling it freedom. It's much more palatable to tell ourselves, you know, I'm for freedom. I stand for freedom rather than actually I just want to do whatever I want. But it's wordplay, y'all. Legitimized with our fad phrases that you know I love, you do you, follow your heart, find your truth. Now, a quick word on freedom, just, just briefly here, okay? Um, let the record show, I like freedom. I like, fr I'm proud to, USA, USA. I, I'm serious, but okay, but I'm, I'm glad to be an American. I, I'm thankful for freedom. I think people need freedom. To thrive in life, humans need freedom. And there are many humans across the globe who don't have enough. But Charles Taylor writes this. He says, philosopher, Canadian philosopher, he says, to, to have any kind of livable society, some choices have to be restricted though. Some authorities have to be respected. Some responsibility has to be assumed. You can't just have limitless freedom or else that's anarchy. And this is where Christianity offers us a much healthier vision of freedom that actually flows into, creates, cultivates human flourishing. So here's the difference between the two. I've made a little chart for you, all right? Our culture... Our culture holds what philosophers call absolute negative freedom. Absolute negative freedom. Which is basically freedom from. But Christianity offers a different sort of freedom. Positive freedom. Which isn't freedom from all restrictions. It's actually freedom for or freedom to pursue some better, some good end. So what you end up having is you have culture saying... You do you, that's what freedom looks like. You have Christianity saying, love thy neighbor. That's what freedom looks like. And I would argue today that only one actually leads to human flourishing. Bet you can't guess which. So I've said this a thousand times, credited to the late Tim Keller. Uh, true freedom isn't the absence of all restrictions. It's the presence of the right restrictions in your life. Uh, let's say uh, an older gentleman, uh, let's say he, he wants to, to eat unhealthy foods. But his doctor tells him, excuse me, sir, if, if you regularly exercise that freedom and you do have that freedom, then what's gonna happen is it's actually gonna diminish the length and the quality of your life. At that moment, our older gentleman has a choice. He can either exercise this lesser freedom and lose his life or he can restrain this lesser freedom to experience the greater freedom of a longer, healthier life. But it's up to him. You see how this works? Yep. Let's say you wanna be a master cellist. If you wanna be a master cellist, uh, you're gonna to have to sacrifice some of your lesser freedoms. You can't just come home and do season one tonight and then season two the next night, all right? That can't be your life. You're not gonna have to uh, sacrifice time out with friends and doing things that other people do in order to practice for hours. But if you sacrifice those lesser freedoms, you can experience the greater freedom of performing with expertise and mastery. But it's a choice. Which freedom do you want? This, by the way, is how relationships work. Anytime I talk to a couple that's uh, engaged, I tell them the same thing. Uh, I tell them if a relationship really wants to take off, then both people have to be for the other. 
When one person starts looking at the other and saying, I'm for you, and the other person says, no, I'm for you, I'm gonna sacrifice for your well-being and for your, no, I'm gonna sacrifice for your well-being and your benefit. I'm gonna lift you up, no, I'm gonna lift you up. When a relationship gets there, that's when marriages flourish, that's when friendships flourish, that's when communities synergize, it's the key. But on the flip side, when folks take the mindset, well, I do you, or uh, I do me and you do you. When they take that mindset, it's not gonna be healthy. So again, this is what Paul was preaching against then. This is what he's preaching against still today. Here's my main point with this one. The main point here with the antinomian, you do you, selfie mindset. This is is the issue at its core, y'all. The main problem here is that it actually seizes authority away from the Holy Spirit and takes it into your own hands. When all the Holy Spirit's trying to do is to guide you towards self-sacrificial love. For what it's worth, the way the Spirit primarily communicates us, uh, communicates to us today is through the scriptures, through God's word that he inspired. And the second you find yourself saying, I got better ideas than scripture, you've fallen guilty to this. You need to repent. All right, now let's throw up our next summary slide. This is a summary slide of the practical part. Note takers, there it is for you. You got your two groups, your two warnings, if you will, from Paul, the legalists, and the antinomians. And back to our original question, I would just ask you today, which are you? Which propensity do you you have? Or maybe you're like me and you're pretty good at both, depending on which side of the bed you roll out of that day. So to the legalists in the room, a closing word. I want to reiterate to you Paul's main point in this passage. Look up here. You don't need more than Jesus. No one does. Jesus is enough. Praise God for that. Because I'm no good at law keeping. I try hard, but I'm no good. Okay, you ready? I'm gonna make a list for you of all the things you need today to be saved. You ready? It's long. Sharpen your pencils. Don't hold your breath. (gasps) Jesus. That is it. You know, a lot of Christians hold their faith as a package. You ever notice that? They're like, well, to become a Christian, yeah, you need faith in Jesus, but you also need like, you need to agree with my literal reading of of Genesis 1 and 2, and you also need to agree with my view of biblical inspiration. You also need to agree that the dinosaurs are on the ark, and you need to believe what I believe about the rapture, and about the tribulation, about the book of Revelation, and about Israel, especially those, right? You got to believe those, and you also need to believe like uh, my politics, that's especially, especially those, and you need to believe my Christology and my pneumatology and my, uh, you know, ecclesiology, my eschatology, my angelology, bibliology, radiology, zoology, urology, proctology. Just, just throw it all in there. You got to believe it all with me. And it's crazy because guess what? You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Now, but I, say, I don't want you to get it twisted. Your theology, your ethics, your worldview, those are things that are very important. We ought to strive to get those right. But not all beliefs are created equal, y'all. This is Paul's point. There is one belief that dwarfs the rest in significance, and that's belief in Jesus' sufficient work. He's the front door, 
He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. He's the way, the truth, and life. And he has descended into death and come back with the keys to death in Hades. He has set us free. So let him set people free. To my legalists in the room, let Jesus do his thing. Stop making it difficult for the Gentiles who are trying to turn to God. Stop throwing obstacles on the narrow way. It's already the narrow way. Just let Jesus do it. Galatians 5.1, I love this passage. Paul says, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free. Don't get tied up in the slavery to the law again. Okay, so, so for those of you in the room today who are maybe undecided on Jesus but intrigued by him, hear me out here, just hear me out. Other people are gonna try to put their secondary beliefs on you in order to disrupt your journey towards Jesus. Don't let them. Just come on right into family today. And for those of you here who are in Christ today, I want you to hear me, okay? Your own conscience, your own conscience marred by sin, prone to guilt and shame. Your own conscience is going to remind you of all the times you failed, all the rules you've broken, all the regrets you've stacked up, all the reasons why you ain't worthy in order to destabilize your security in Christ. Don't let it. Christ has truly set you free in the name of Jesus. We rebuke that legalism today. He's the only one who could keep the law and he cashed in his perfect righteousness to pay our penalty. We are ransomed free at last, free at last. Somebody better clap, free at last. Thank you, Jesus, thank you. Now, a concluding word to the antinomians and then we're gonna take communion and sing because that's what you, you gotta do after something like this. Concluding word to all the you do you selfies in the room, all right? I wanna say this to you, and this is Paul's argument, and we're gonna make it in deep, deeper, deeper next week, so come back. This is Paul's argument. There is a better way to do life than chasing desire. Amen. Paul actually makes the argument that there are two warring masters within us. There's one master he calls the flesh that's trying to convince you that the good life, the good life is self-indulging license. And then there's another master, the spirit, who's within you trying to convince you that the good life is not self-indulging license, but self-sacrificing love. Listen to the spirit. Don't come out of slavery from the law and go right back into slavery in the flesh. Listen to the spirit. Identity is all the rage today, isn't it? We're told that the key to life is to look inside of ourselves, discover your deepest desires, and then do all you can to have them, regardless of what anyone else says. Now, I'm gonna surprise you real quick. I'm gonna surprise you. I kinda agree. I do. I think one of the light bulb moments in life is discovering what your deepest desires are, what you're truly made for. I just disagree with what our culture says our deepest desires actually are. Our culture tells us that our loudest, most immediate, most carnal desires are deepest. But scripture teaches that our deepest desires are found in the cross-shaped love of Jesus. And what makes this so hard to believe is that that desire, the desire for self-sacrificing love, it's not always the most desirable. Are you with me? Self-indulgence is louder. Self-indulgence is more immediate. But self-sacrificing love, it is the material through which God made us. It's the power through which Jesus saved us. And it is the direction to which the Spirit will raise us now and forevermore. 
Isn't it a scheme of the devil that our culture has redefined freedom as bowing to the desires of the flesh? So in the name of Jesus, we rebuke those desires of the flesh today that aim to steal, kill, and destroy our freedom and flourishing. We ask the spirit to lead us out of law, away from license, and into love. Amen. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to put a prayer on the board that summarizes this sermon today. I'm going to give you 20 seconds to yourself. I want you to pray this prayer. I want you to identify as you're praying where you need the spirit to help today. Is it legalism? Is it antinomianism? Is it under the law or is it lawlessness? Identify that. Welcome Jesus in. And then Corbin will lead us in partaking.